welcome everyone. This is episode 25 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me uh, Barton Wang for the third time. Barton is a, a Twitter celebrity. He dazzles with his intellect there every, uh, every day he chooses to interact, which is about, about what, Barton? Every, every third day or so you take on Twitter. Yeah, I, I pick a topic and then uh, either excite people or, or offend people. <laughs> and he, uh, I was very pleased to hear, is starting a subscription website. Um, it's going to be ready in six weeks or so. He's not going to give any details today, but he's going to uh, come back on the pod when it's ready in, in six to eight weeks. So, so Barton, I have to tell you, you've been by far my most popular podcast guest. Our second episode had uh, over 25,000 downloads. Wow. I don't know the exact number because I'm, I'm getting suspicious that maybe, I don't know, uh, Chinese intelligence authorities are, are monitoring your activities or something because the YouTube, the YouTube view counts, they, they go down. So if you Google our, our uh, coronavirus-focused second podcast, it had like 15,000 views in the first uh, two weeks. And then if you Google it now, it shows 10,000 views. So, yeah, I, I don't know what complexities go into uh, the viewing algorithm, but you, you would think that it would be a one-way street, mathematically speaking. It's, uh, it's, man it's managed to go down over time, so I can't quite explain that. My suspicion is that YouTube is allowing people to short the view count <laughs> of your channel. But at any rate, uh, people have greatly valued what you have to say. Um, and as you know, uh, they value the, the market commentary and the, and the virus commentary uh, equally. Now, I, I did a little Twitter poll and it's mostly interest about markets. So what, what I would like to do is sort of step back <clears throat> to our last podcast, which was on March 10th, um, where you basically previewed for everyone what would happen over the next several months. And uh, you were very much correct in your predictions. They were shocking predictions at the time, but they turned out to be uh, very much true. The death count from COVID now is around 200,000 and it's it's far from over, unfortunately. Um, at the time that we chatted, expert assessments were maybe 80,000 deaths, and some people viewed that as alarmist. So um, it's, been, it's been quite interesting to watch, to watch things evolve. And we, we also spent a good bit of time talking about markets and what was likely to be the government response to coronavirus. Um, I would like to start there, okay, because we both predicted a, a somewhat massive government response. To me, um, to me, the response became interesting um, on the day in late March when the Fed announced that they were going to be buying ETFs in the junk bond market. I say that it became interesting at that point because 
it was expected that there would be a large fiscal package and there was a large fiscal package. It was expected that there would be aggressive Federal Reserve action and there was aggressive Federal Reserve action. Mm -hmm. The Friday when it was announced that there would be this sort of emergency measure, it was announced in conjunction with a bad employment number. Um, the Friday when that sort of emergency massive intervention was announced, um, Druckenmiller described it as bizarrely aggressive in his mind. And he used the term bizarrely aggressive because um, markets had already recovered. They had already, they had already stabilized. So the sort of dislocations that you saw in the treasury market, those were over. Um, there had been a lot of very intense movements in the volatility sector. Those had stabilized. Volatility was still high, but, but it had stabilized. It was dropping at the time, yeah. There had been a lot of intense selling by ETFs, which led to um, pretty crazy low valuations in like oil and gas and certain certain sectors. Those had stabilized. Um, the, the junk bond market, although understandably doing somewhat poorly, um, it wasn't like a real systemic threat to the to the economy or the financial markets. Um, and you had, I believe earlier in that week, you had one day that was the biggest, one of the biggest point gains in S&P history. Mm -hmm. um, so the question is why that aggressive of a response, what, what your opinion of it is. Um, it's also, it's also worth noting, I think that, um, one of my concerns during financial crisis is always that their <sighs> fairness concerns are thrown out the window and including among the fairness concerns are, are, um, let's say preferential disclosure. So during the, during the great financial crisis, there was a well-known meeting that Hank Paulson had with 13 big managers where he highlighted the, the sort of break the glass strategies for Fannie and Freddie that they ultimately kind of used in September. Of course, if you were, if you happened to be at that meeting, you would have been long biased, right? Um, so, so one wonders whether the, um, the plan to have the Fed engage with BlackRock in the junk bond market could have been held fully quiet. And if it wasn't held fully quiet, perhaps that was the reason for the, the rallies early in the week. So these are the type of sort of unjust things that, that can happen in financial crisis. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could give your view of those, of those interventions, because we haven't chatted since March 10th and in, at any length. And I, I wonder if you could give your, your overview. Yeah, it's been ages, right? This half a year feels like 10 years, like so many things has happened from the policy perspective, from the market perspective. Uh, my view of what happened in late March was that the second leg of selling uh, in the equity market, a lot of it was mechanical. 
from the existing position, from the structured products, from a lot of the hedging activity from the bank. So the last leg of the, the selling down to 2300 for SPX wasn't necessarily a uh, fundamental driven or uh, it's, it's a lot of speculation, let me just put it that way. And, so, and, and also the mechanical flow from the bank's hedging activity. So that is a two-way street. It can reverse pretty quickly. Uh, what I think of Fed, I, I think what they did in my perspective was extreme overreaction to what has materialized in the market. Like the amount of monetary stimulus they're throwing as the amount of drawballing they have done in the credit space. The, the buying ETF, the credit ETF, all those things didn't really materialize until two months later, right? They were just talking about it. But just by talking about it, that, can, that pretty much pushed the junk bonds recovered to the, pre, the pre-COVID levels uh, in about two to three weeks back in March. Um, they justify, they can justify it using, uh, you know, mechanical arguments. So they have to make sure they want to make the volatile, realized volatility of the market go down. They want to make sure the transmission mechanism from the monetary base, like the bank reserve they've been creating to the actual credit that the economy, uh, uses the, the bank loans to the private, uh, sectors. They want that to restart, which is a, you know, a good argument, but there are other ways to do it. They're using an extremely blunt instrument to just you know, push it through with massive amount of QE and a massive amount of uh, uh, just you know, buying junk bonds and regardless of the quality of the underlying asset, which is triggering a massive amount of uh, moral hazard. <laughs> we can see what... Uh, uh, Nikolai has been doing in the past couple of months, and then there are many, multiple examples of that. So um, I agree with you. It's a, it's a very massive uh, overreaction, and uh, uh, they provided the ammo. They provided the specula- speculative capital to speculators in the market. Well, I'm not talking about the Robin Hood traders. So I'm talking about the big institutional uh, uh, players in the field who can now uh, get really cheap loans uh, with very little cost to speculate and profit from from the moves, and that's what we have been seeing in the in the past six months. We talked last time about the Fed's extreme reaction to the uh, repo crisis, if you will, the uh, in in early September. And we noted that it was, in a sense, a preview of what's to come because the Fed, they have to fund budget deficits, which are gargantuan and getting more gargantuan. And so they will do what they have to do to make sure that the, that the, the market for, for government paper is... It's healthy now. Um, but historically, they only have to do 15% of that. Yeah, as you noted, the New York Fed does typically a little bit more than they, than, than they have to. They, they go out, not outside the bounds, but to the maximum allowed Op- operation. Okay. Well, well, policy-wise, the, the, the Fed goes aggressive, and then operationally, 
they they tend to be on the the uh, aggressive bound as well. Right. So what I'm trying to say is that historically, they only have to do 15% of the extra deficit the government is incurring, and then the rest, 85%, can be absorbed by private sector via credit creation. Uh, that's the tip. That's the balance that has been executed in the past 20 years. And you expect that relationship to hold? It would seem that the relationship might um, falter over time because perhaps we don't run the persistent. We're we're not allowed not not to say allowed, but very large persistent current account deficits might not be tolerated. And if they are tolerated, it might not be the desire of the trading partners to go into treasuries and and government-backed securities. Um, so maybe the relationship weakens, or you don't think so? I think the relationship will weaken a little, but not to the, the ratio we're seeing today. Uh, I think every country, every developed economy will have to devalue their currency as well. So it's just a competitive devaluation process, and everybody will be in the same boat uh, in terms of uh, their, you know, that government sovereignty get that getting uh, sort of stealthily uh, defaulted because of the devaluation of the currency. So everybody will be in the same boat. Treasury, U.S. Treasury is not uh, particularly uh, worthless in comparison to you know Japanese uh, sovereignty debt or, or or German bonds. In terms of where we are now, yeah. going forward, you. Uh, I've, I've read s- some of your your Twitter posts where you you expect going forward the Fed action to be uh, somewhat well anticipated by the market, somewhat somewhat neutral, and you think that there are there are complicated reactions with the election, and you think that the um, the fiscal support which has been extreme is starting to peter out a little bit. It's, it's, it has already petered out quite a bit. So, so let's look at the big numbers, right? So, Fed has printed three trillion during the acute phase of the crisis, and now they are printing a hundred and twenty billion a month, right? Um, There's some, uh, you know, reductions because of their rolling off their dollar swap lines, but. The, the the big picture is that they're printing 120 billion a month, and at the same time, the fiscal deficit from the CARES Act and everything else the, the, is around 2.5 trillion dollars, uh, and uh, adding that to the one trillion dollar average annual deficit that we have been having, that's about 3.5 trillion dollars at this point. So Fed actually overprinted. Uh, uh, printing more money than the fiscal deficit we have incurred so far. Now, uh, we're in a situation where Fed has been printing, but this money is actually not flowing into the economy because nobody is lending. Uh, At least the private sector is not lending because there's still a lot of uncertainty in the economy. And you can see that the monetary base, the bank reserves are growing. There's no longer a repo problem. Repo balance is actually zero now. Nobody needs more, (laughs) needs to, collateralize their assets to to get more bank reserves Uh, and banks are not lending so the M2 
hasn't grown much. M2 basically only grow as much as the uh, monetary base has expanded. So if you look at the mon money multiplier, uh, it's it's falling. The speed of money is been, has been falling because uh, because uh, the private sector has been uh, still not very optimistic about the, the short-term uh, outcome of, of uh, how we can recover from this. So that's why the only credit creation here is from the, federal, the government spending. And the government spending basically is, uh, has two parts. They first issue debt, uh, new debt, uh, which swaps the uh, existing money printed by Fed uh, that's residing on bank's balance sheet into uh, so the banks gets the the, the new, newly printed newly minted uh, treasury bills or, or treasury bonds and the treasury get the money and then hopefully in a month or two the treasury spend the money and give this money back into the private sector for nothing because it's, this is deficit spending by definition right and that process increased the size of the balance sheet of the, the private sector and that's that's a Similar credit creation process, just like the banks writing loans to, to business or, or to in, in terms of mortgage to the households. And that's how we are seeing uh, the Fed printed money flowing into the economy. But this is a very slow process and uh, the fiscal spending apparently have uh, fell behind the Fed money printing. So the uh, I think most of the driving force, most of the, what's the most important driving force in the market right now is actually the fiscal policy. When the money is coming out, how much is coming out, that's uh, driving how much uh, s uh, speculation or how much uh, uh, hot money we can have for various assets from, from stocks to precious metals to uh, other commodities, uh, pretty much everything. So I want to tackle a big picture question with you which is growth versus value stocks and the historic underperformance of value but before we go there i i just want to go back to march for a second so yeah. you said that the fed over overreacted and you said that there was the mechanical selling the mechanical selling it um it is related to uh, structured products unwinds at banks. And it also seemed to be related to um, ETF flows and like forced selling by, by ETFs with no, with no buyers. And you saw that in strongly in specific sectors. Um, now, um, on the one hand, the S&P looked uh, fairly valued or some would argue undervalued at that, at that level. Um, but on the other hand, it, it was revealing faster than people ever expected some, some structural weaknesses with the market that people have been pointing out over years. Um, part of it is that, um, systematic risk had shifted in some people's view from the banking sector, which erupted in 2008 and 2009 to 
the major holders of retirement assets, your your Fidelities, uh, BlackRock, State Street, like your your major your major holdings of basically U.S. retirement equity holdings, right? Of, of fairly passive U.S. retirement equity holdings. And um, I was talking with people around that time who worked with around those institutions. And um, I think there was a feeling of absolute hopelessness at those institutions where they just have these gigantic positions that they can't possibly get out of. And they just have to sit back and hope, which like, uh, like on the one hand argues for lower levels because the biggest holders of these, uh, uh, of, of key stocks in the S and P have no strategy, but to hope, and there's no obvious other buyers to take, to take the place. So it was a very odd moment where you saw like, first of all, how, structurally weak us equity markets are just the 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 things have changed in a way where we can almost expect these these periods of like blinding volatility um and um it was it was on the one hand looking like a fairly good buy for the s p at 2300 on the other hand it was an it was an obvious buy only in retrospect because you did have like the biggest holders of equities wondering what the F they were going to do right. and had no, and they had no strategy. They had no strategy before the fact they had no strategy during the crisis other than hope. So this market right now, well, it has been like this, as you said, the structural issue for years. All the successful traders, nobody look at the fundamentals. Fundamental, the fundamental of the market hasn't mattered for, de- for more than a decade, right? Apple's earning, Apple's uh, income has not increased nearly as quickly. Well, it hasn't increased much in the past five years while their stock price, their, their uh, market cap exploded. Uh, there are numerous examples like that. So, the market basically is trading on this uh, hand-waving argument about the value, the, the multiple expansion for whatever narrative and storage people invent. And it's just sort of a, it's, it's a large trading range uh, of a factor of five. You know, if Apple stocks can double by another, can, can increase by another factor of two or can decrease by a factor of three, that all seems to be reasonable because the because the valuation is just what people there's there's actually no fundamental economic argument for for the for the valuation like that. So uh, what's being driven is, is a lot of it has to, to do with the option market, the derivative market, uh, how the speculative speculative money, uh, how how are they positioned? They can play both long and short with relatively little capital because they just need to you know do the marginal bid or sell or selling to, to move the prices. And they have done that uh, quite effectively in June and in uh, August and September with this uh, uh, blow off tops. So yeah, our market has been like being this uh, casino for a while. And uh, it's, it's, there's no strategy because there is no, People hasn't believed in any, you know, the fundamentals, valuations, and none of that. And as an aside, like, I feel it's 
the most awkward era ever for like retiree age people because with the traditional 60-40 allocation, you feel like you're doing responsible retirement planning, but you're really just gambling your face off. Well, you need to do 60-40 with uh, the, the, the 3X ETF, right? You can do 60-40 with TQQQ and TMF, both are 3X QQQ and 3X uh, treasury, uh, long treasury, 20-year uh, treasury. I think that return was like, 40, 40x, 48x return in the past 10 years. Um, wow. That's just, <laughs> I had a tweet about it. It was, I don't think that's a viable uh, strategy for the, for the future, but it's just, it just shows how crazy uh, the market has been. And, and part of the, the disagreement, the hand-waving that you're talking about on valuations does come down to just finance 101, you're going to have more disagreements about valuation when interest rates are going down towards zero because when the denominator is shrinking like that, it just, it creates all sorts of havoc and volatility in the numbers. You have extreme sensitivity to assumptions. Whereas I think if the, if the discount rate, if interest rates are 6%, 8%, there's, there's less room for reasonable people to debate certain valuations. Um, exactly. We're getting close to the divide by zero arrow pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you talk about blow off tops and extreme speculation, the barstool sports effect, the Robin hood effect, whatever, whatever people want to call it. Um, it's an unbelievably interesting time you have. Okay. Um, I had on my podcast a friend who's a great thinker about risk, Aaron Brown. He used to be the, I believe he was the chief risk officer at um, AQR, very well run, very well known quant hedge fund. Yeah, and, one of the best. And um, Cliff Asnes is very, uh, a very prolific writer, blogger, uh, he, he used to tweet very actively, then he took a long hiatus and he started up again. He is very open about times where he gets things completely wrong. In fact, he writes, he writes at length during times of distress at the fund, right? He tries to explain what's happening. Um, so in June at some point, he came back to Twitter and introduced a long blog post about growth versus value. And essentially what he's doing is explaining underperformance at AQR because AQR, to simplify matters, they uh, their quant funds invest in long-term quantitative anomalies in the market, one of which has been that value outperforms over time. Uh, so, that, so, so, um, and they, um, as this was essentially saying, our performance has been bad and it's because we've been long the value factor and value has been crushed relative to growth. And he, he breaks it down every possible way looking at all the d different counter arguments. Well, you're not considering intangibles and this and that. And the, yeah. 
And he comes to the conclusion that however you slice it, this is this is top one percentile for growth outperforming value. And mm-hmm. it might never mean revert, but we're going to stick with the bet that it reverts. Okay. Mm-hmm. I believe like in the 10 days that uh, after his post came out, growth trounced value every single day or close to every single day. And then over the course of the summer, basically uh, growth destroyed value almost every week. Like it just became ridiculous. As you said, a blow off top growth um, gets destroyed. So I um, I myself have wondered um, where this blow off top comes from. Um, there is the, the Robin Hood argument that the, the day trader accounts are blowing up with winnings and they keep investing very aggressively. There is, there is the um, option market driven arguments where uh, extreme, just absolute pedal down to the floor speculation among options traders has led to uh, delta hedging on the part of uh, option market makers that, that, that kick up values. And then I think my impression is that a, a, um, underappreciated source is that you've had this throw in the towel by shorts that gravitated over the course of the summer from your just punter shorts to the most sophisticated funds in the world that are engaging in short selling that are, that are forced to throw in the towel for one reason or another. Um, or just forced to rebalance, sell cover to rebalance. Um, so it's been a very, a, a, a very crazy, uh, move. And I, I'm curious on the, on the Delta hedging side, this is a side that's been sort of very well covered. I would refer, uh, listeners to the recent Ben Eifert um, podcast on, on Bloomberg. Um, but um, you had, you had the volatility sector extremely disrupted in March. Mm-hmm. That was clear. Um, right. And then um, in April and May, as the market starts to skyrocket, Volatility doesn't come down as much as anticipated. Um, So I guess question one for you is, you said that the balance sheets of major financial market players are as healthy as they've ever been. There's lots of liquidity there, but, but the, the balance sheets of your major market makers, your Citadel, Susquehanna, whatever, or, whatever combination of balance sheets and toleration to write options. Has that decreased in some way as a result of, I don't know, being burned in March, being burned continuously over the summer by the by day traders? Is the, is the appetite among the citadels of the world in some ways decreased? I think Citadel made a lot of money out of this. Uh, their financing cost of... Uh, using their existing position as collateral and uh, get financing to uh, establish a new position has dropped almost to zero. And uh, they have been pretty smart in 
dealing with the risk and for those high flying stocks or those the the ones that went through parabolic uh explosive uh growth phase of their prices their ask bid spread was crazy during those uh, ex ex explosive phases so the market makers i mean they some of them did get hurt, I think, but a lot of them are thriving pretty well. They are, they have ways to transfer their risk, you know, from from single names to indices and to uh, volatility ETFs. There are ways to hedge their risk as well, as long as they're on, they're on top of things. What I, I do believe, so back to your original question, I do believe this delta hedging played a huge role in it, uh, in, in the both the uh, ramp up and the subsequent uh, sell off of many of these names, as well as indices. I think it's not dominated by the Robinhood traders. Robinhood traders are very loud and they talk about their books uh, in very colorful language over uh, Wall Street bets and all those Reddit uh, forums. I think it's mostly actually institutional players, uh, not limited to. Uh, to South banks uh, some various other ones. Uh, I do have a lot of data on this, and so maybe it would be good to actually uh, write along as that and then just show exactly what happened in June and what exactly happened in, in August. You can see some hints. I can give you examples of, uh, of how this is mostly driven by option and only you know probably 10, 20% driven by the short, short covering from the, you know, owning the underlying position. So, so if you look at uh, two examples, United Airlines and UPS, United had a huge uh, blow off top in June and uh, UPS had a, a, a sort of top uh, in late July, early August when the, when the USPS uh, mail slowdown news came out. In both cases, the rally went to the level just when the short-term uh, option strike stops. Like I think United was either 60 or 65. That's when they run out of uh, option strikes. The, the, the Siebel did not create any uh, weekly United Airlines options above $65 for that week. And the rally just went up to $65. At that point, all the call become in the money. And as you know, most people trade out of money options. They don't trade in the money option, they only close it. So once all the near term, uh, the, the, the weekly uh, options are in the money, there's no more buying. And then the stock just immediately revert direction and start to fall. And same thing happened to UPS and it happens to Kodak, happens to like every single one of these uh, sharp parabolic uh, rallies uh, in the past two, two uh, three months, let's say. So, okay, there are so many puzzling aspects about this. Um, I guess let's just start, let's just start listing off the puzzles, okay? Yeah. Um, puzzle number one is, uh, and this is something that Ben Eifert pointed out in his Bloomberg podcast, oh, very aggressive speculators trying to force some move based on Delta hedging by market makers that are caught unaware. Um, that can work once, but it's not going to work systematically. So it's sort of a crazy strategy to, to do uh, over and over again. The, the, um, the other part that 
I thought had been obvious to speculators for time memorial is that, is that the that it works in both directions. Like you can, right? Um, but there, I guess the attitude this summer was get stocks to move in your benefit because there would be delta hedging as the stock went up and it would just keep going up and then and then you would be out before the before the the hedges were reversed. Yeah, so so regarding your first point, this is a zero sum game, right? The money uh, during the money, the wealth transfer during such a, a explosive rally and the subsequent sell-off is basically money going from market maker's pocket to the to the speculator's pocket. And if you bankrupt all the market makers, who's going to make the market for you? Who's going to sell you the cheap options in the first place? Uh, and so as a result, the, the, the option prices will go up. The opportunity of profiting from such a scheme will, will diminish over time. Um, or the market maker just wouldn't play this game. And then the, again, the, the ask bid spread will grow tremendously. And, uh, um, the the implied volatility will be very high for single names or for names that has gone through such a movement and it's just not going to be easy for people to profit the split split the slippage will be too large for individual traders and for, for institutional traders as well um so so that's one thing and then yeah as you said it's two-way street gamma if you have the, if the market maker has negative gamma on their books, the, it could go up very quickly. It could also come down very quickly. Uh, I think it's not that only gamma here that's in play. It's also the other mechanical forces in the option market. The people who, uh, you know, have their caller position, meaning they they short a out of money call and then buy a. Um, out of money puts to hedge their position, the the sh the short vol. There's they, they have that has been diminished quite a bit, but still there are people doing that, and there are these short term <laughs> short term speculators. These people they also roll their position. They they buy in certain times and then sell. Oh, when the <clears throat> when their position mature and they re-enter at the, the another time a few weeks later. So when all of these mechanical forces, when they initially buy their set up their option position there is a delayed impact on how the market maker will, will hedge their position, how the uh, structured products have to hedge their position. All of this delayed if impact of their action, of these option traders' action, once they you know, constructively add up to each other, you start to have these uh, massive realized volatility, massive rally, massive sell-off, uh, re repeat themselves over and over. I guess the other mystery of everything is that to the extent that it was retail-driven, partially retail-driven, and, and you say that it's, it's actually institutions that were more important, but to the extent that retail was important, um, it seemed that they were, they only became important because of this pedal to the floor mentality where they would, they would buy the short-term options and then basically stay very aggressive. So they would take the profits and, and like um, roll it into new things. And um, I guess from that perspective, the win streak becomes amazing because yeah. they, they have to, um, well, the way that I would typically think about it is that 
if all speculators today decide to to buy Tesla next week, Tesla Tesla strikes next week, Tesla goes up. Mm-hmm. Um, but for it for Tesla to stay up, they have to kind of roll their positions into the next week. Like their account has to be healthy enough to roll the positions into the next week. And it was amazing that that was able to proceed for so long because if there's even the slightest bit of hesitation in terms of rolling it into the next week, then the process of all of those Robinhood speculators cashing out their gains in the Tesla options will, will tank the stock immediately. They don't actually roll. They, the, those rallies usually only last for at most two weeks. Yeah. They, once they stop rolling, they, 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 they cash out their profits. That's it. Then you see the you see the stuff fall, falls back. And this is not just in Tesla. Look at silver, look at gold. It's exactly the same situation. Uh, silver is a good example. Silver options are usually trade, they, they have huge uh, option positions in the month of expiration. And also there's, uh, at the end of the month, there's uh, the, the silver future options expire. These are the two biggest uh, positions every month. So you can see silver only moves uh, bigly, two weeks, one to two weeks before these options expire. So it's, uh, it's uh, uh, usually middle, like from fifths to the, to the 20th of the months when, when these positions are established. Uh, at other times, it's just sort of a range bound, mean reversion, not going anywhere, I kind of uh, move. It gold as well. Okay, do you think that this is likely to quiet down that's question. That's one question. The other is how much gamification is involved in, in terms of like, how much is this option behavior people scheming that, that they're going to force, force the hands of market makers or some other players? I think it will go on for a long time, unfortunately. Uh, so to circle back to your earlier comment about value and growth, one way of looking at it right now, it seems to be the, you know, what is a value stock? What is a growth stock? The, the boundary is not as clean cut as before. And to me, it more, it's probably more accurate to say there is these uh, stocks where option traders try to uh, corner the market maker and then create a lot of, a lot of this negative gamma situation. Uh, for example, AMD, for example, SMH, that's semiconductor uh, sector. ETF and uh, uh, Amazon, Apple, occasionally, not always, uh, Tesla for sure. Um, and you, you, can, you can see those when they're the skew, the, the, volatil, the vol surface uh, of, the, of the, those names go just into one percentile kind of situation. It's completely crazy along to get, alongside with huge uh, positions, huge volumes. There were many days and for Amazon, Tesla, there like the notional value of the option being traded every day exceeds the the, the volume of the underlying by like factor of three or five. So it's like a majority of the trading was done in options, not in the underlying stocks. And the underlying stocks are just sort of at the end of the day, we're gonna you know balance our book and make sure our deltas are hedged and you know that kind of situation. Uh, it's it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens a lot of times. And then you have like Intel, Boeing, those names, they also have huge op- 
open uh, interest for their options, but these are more like traditional option positions where there's cover calls and then uh, the stocks are kind of range bound and not moving anywhere because nobody is setting up the, the um, sort of those negative gamma or, or uh, everybody was sort of lopsided in their, in their uh, short-term hedging. So it's, it's not, it's, it seems less to be a growth versus value situation now. It's more like a speculative <laughs> names versus non-speculative names uh, situation. And, 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 and then it does rotate and depends on people's, uh, it depends on the narratives. And Boeing used to be a pretty speculative stocks a couple of years ago. And then now it's a huge, huge open interest, but not, a, not as much speculation as, as, uh, as Tesla. I would agree that you, you can make that distinction, the speculative names versus the non-speculative names. Another really interesting thing that happened, and this is not really commented upon, but the Robinhood crowd was right in one key regard, which is that when we look at the figures for e-commerce in the last six months, it's been absolutely remarkable. And I don't think anyone really anticipated what would happen. Like it basically accelerated the adoption of e-commerce by like five years relative that's to growth right. trend. And like, that's crazy. I mean, from the depths of March, I think certain people had ideas, okay, these internet companies, they might, they might do well. And of course it was obvious that Amazon was gonna do well. And I mean, there were things that everyone could see, but I think that number is shocking, and the Robin Hood crowd was ahead there, right? So you have to kind of give give that win. Um, and they're they're also ahead, maybe by accident, in in realizing that okay, you do have this extreme uh, spending, this extreme deficit spending by the government. This is going to be at the margin, a positive impact on corporate profits. Um, we know that profits are traditionally shared by private owned businesses, the, the restaurants and, and local businesses that we all know and love and our major corporations, right? It was ex post obvious that with one sector being completely decimated, that is the sort of privately held restaurants of the world and, and all of the service businesses that make up most cities, um, that, the, that the profit flow would go to uh, these e-commerce companies. Yeah. And, and it, a little bit out of proportion though, I think some of the e-commerce things is. <laughs> oh, of course. Well, well but, but what it, what it did um, in terms of stock values was like you take a Carvana move yesterday, okay? You have sort of a real battleground stock where there's questions of will the company ever be profitable? Like, and then there's other like extreme bulls and it's a battleground kind of stock. Right. But if you can accelerate the, the path to to positive accounting profit, positive EBITDA, and 
yeah. further down the line, positive cash flow, like all of a sudden the, the short case evaporates. You know what I'm saying? So basically people are just extrapolating the, the nearest, uh, you know, one year performance into infinity. And uh, I think that's how the market interpret, interpret uh, the fundamental uh, of, of the various companies. And it's, we're, we're just seeing this uh, extremely sensitive, uh, extreme sensitivity of stock prices versus, you know, the, the earning news. Um, Look. It is, it is crazy. I, I agree. It is extrapolation when you're to infinity, but you, you always have to sort of see the other side. And, 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 and I guess when I try to see, all right, why do these prices make some degree of sense, even though in my bones they don't, um, I, I go to the fact that we might be in an economy in a, in, that's increasingly government-controlled, increasingly driven by deficit finance and basically this just might be the new normal that that corporate profits in the macro sense are, are dictated by the level of government deficits and no one cares about the private sector restaurants and service businesses that are all left to die on the vine and the um and the the corporate profits show up in all of these e-commerce companies like that's that's a possible scenario and that and that can happen that can happen without there being uh large amounts of inflation in the economy um there's another way of looking at it where current prices make some sense which is perhaps the market is pricing in incipient inflation it's maybe not the first asset, but it's it's early in pricing incipient inflation. There's there's history like in in, in Germany, well before the inflation, you had a speculative run up of the most speculative stocks, um, and there is some rational case for it because um, it's it's sort of like the market is valuing these companies as if all that matters is what the world looks like 10 years from now because because there will have been so much inflation at that time that like it sort of doesn't matter how much you year you earn in 2020 it's about what your position is to to earn dollars in in 2030 yes because the 2020 dollar is so devalued relative to the 2030 dollar I completely agree. I think we should see at least the factor of two or three inflation because Fed is a very slow moving uh, institution. We know they're going to be very slow if they ever do any QT to unwind their, 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 their money printing, right? It's probably never going to happen. And it's just, it's just a matter of time when, when those money turn into inflation. I mean, CPI, CPI doesn't matter. It's, it's being cheated all the time. The housing price has been going up, uh, college tuitions, uh, you know, insurance prices, medicine prices, like these things they don't take into account. So, but yesterday I received this letter. I know this is an anecdotal. My, my, uh, one of the mortgage company I used before wrote me a letter say, Hey, I'm going to, we have pre-approved you for 2.5%, uh, please refi, finance your mortgage. Like, uh, cash out refi. Like if they're pushing all of these to, uh, to to my neighbors, then everybody does refi. That's uh, how 
money going to, uh, you know, go from Fed's uh, bank reserve to people's pocket, and that's going to drive inflation, and then that's going to drive uh, corporate earning and all that. But I think a factor of two or three, maybe, uh, not necessarily a factor of ten, and then um, the companies are going to yeah, e-commerce will definitely be the future. Uh, brick and model will be. Uh, there are dinosaurs, so so there there are lots of upside in in e-commerce, but you know the way they're going up is a little bit crazy. <laughs> That's my point. And okay, to comment briefly on the the recent change in Fed policy of inflation rate averaging, um, I find it bizarre that that none of the um traditional objections to, to such thinking have been raised. Um, the traditional objections from the economics profession would be that, that policy, it always has to, uh, there's extreme lags. There's a lack of visibility and there are extreme lags. So if you're waiting as they are now to sort of to, to see the whites of the eyes, it's, it's too late. Like it's, it always has been from a policy standpoint, that's always been the challenge of monetary policy. So to, to just forget that challenge of monetary policy that's been known forever seems completely bizarre to me. And I, like I was listening to uh, Cash Carey go on some podcast and talk about how like people have been doing it all wrong in the history of monetary policy and that you, you really, he needs to see it. He needs to see it. He needs to see it in the data. And the data, the data is lagged. The policy effects are lagged. Uh, when you see it, it's too late. That's all. That's always been known. Um, so I, I just I find it puzzling that that's that that's been forgotten. And it's all just for politics right now, right? It is just all politics. It's willfully forgotten, but it's and, and, and adding on onto that, I that the one thing I, f- I feel really uncomfortable right now is this dynamics has been also uh, giving a lot of incentive for companies to focus on speculating on their own stocks as opposed to doing a good job on their core products. Like I've seen vaccine makers doing shady stock trading, option trading before their news release. And it's just, this is like, okay, if we make Moderna, if we make Boeing good stock traders and option traders, that's not going to help America as a competitive country for the next 20 years. This incentive structure is, is, it's, you know, turning everybody into a stock trader. Like we can have stock traders, but you know, we do, we also need company that actually makes stuff. Right. And, 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 and also improve technology. I actually, I started a blog post on this, on this idea. I need to, I need to finish it. But the, the idea of, of the blog post is that this monetary policy does economically is like every possible good idea happens now or there's an incentive to have it happen now like you can see it in the SPAC phenomena like there's just an incentive to bring everything to the future because that's that's what the the yield curve is telling you to do uh to bring everything that might possibly be viable into the future now and you can you can get the value now yeah putting forward all the future earning future good future appreciation just happening now it creates a real sense of stagnation and hopelessness going forward because like fast forward one year all the SPACs have 
in every possible business opportunity, have some wildly ambitious plan. It's in action. Like everything is in action. Like basically for anyone considering any kind of new enterprise for any sort of entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah. It, it becomes a quite dead space. Like everything that might potentially make any sense is already being done. It's already being done at very uh, high levels of financing and, and there's no, there's no real point. Um, and, and we know that what happens is that it weighs on long-term productivity numbers because on the one hand, everything that's viable is brought into fruition today. Mm-hmm. But in the process, a lot which is not viable is also brought into fruition. Mm-hmm. And, and those companies are the ones that weigh down productivity for a long time. So one has to expect that productivity numbers over the next decade or two are very poor despite the extreme advances coming from, from technology. So you, so you, you, you pivoted there for a second to, to vaccines. I want to go to COVID a little bit and I want to, um, I want to talk about your views of, um, the, the COVID vaccine. Um, I want to talk about your views of second waves. Um, just quickly, I'm not going to keep you for too long, but I, I would like to hear, to hear those views. Yeah, I wrote a blog post about COVID vaccine uh, two weeks, two, three weeks ago. It's going to be a pretty surprising case for many people. I don't think COVID vaccine will prevent infection or spread because it's injectable. And most likely it just prevents severe diseases. So, so there's going to be some pretty interesting consequences out of this. I think by May next year, uh, most people in the U.S. probably be either infected or vaccinated. Uh, and because vaccination does not prevent uh, COVID from spreading, it, it literally just turned COVID into common cold, right? If you're vaccinated, it's common cold, uh, but you can still get it over and over. You can still spread it. You're still going to sneeze. You can still have runny nose. And unless we have good testing, then this is going to be really bad for people who haven't got vaccinated and uh, who have to go to work because the, all the social distancing rules are gone. So I don't worry too much about kids. I don't worry too much about people like us who are not uh, retired yet. Uh, but uh, for senior people, I'm still very concerned. I don't think uh, they are out of woods at all. And, uh, and with everybody, if, like, if COVID become more prevalent, uh, more people are having it, but not showing symptoms, you just have tons of asymptomatic people uh, spreading it, then senior people will probably have to hunker down until they really all get vaccinated. That's, that's the biggest worry I have now is that people are, are, are taking it too, too lightly again, like what we had in June. So, so the COVID vaccine, it's a little bit um, difficult issue right now in the U.S. in terms of the trials, so which one will be safe, which one will be effective. Um, so remember we talked about, we were like hydroxychloroquine was really uh, sort of a hot med for COVID back in March, right? Uh, and it never became a sort of medical a scientifically established conclusion whether hydroxychloroquine is good or not for tr 
for treating COVID as an early antiviral because this med became politicized and we rushed through the trials and we ended up giving hydroxychloroquine to people who did wrong people, they were giving it too late. And we didn't look at whether hydroxychloroquine can be paired with other meds to, to pair for human cells and all that. So I'm afraid that COVID vaccine will be in the same situation, that for political reasons, the trial will be rushed through uh, before the election day. And then once you rush it through, the people who are on the control arm of the trial will also have to get the vaccine, you know, as soon as you finish it, uh, which ideally I hope we'll have like two or three months, more months of data to, to really see whether it's effective or not. But if they rush it, we only get one month of data and you never really know whether these vaccines are helpful in reducing severe diseases. Are they going to be, you know, reducing the fatality rate? You just have, have some preliminary data say, okay, it probably reduced some mild cases. And then we'll just never know because the data are going to be compromised uh, because the trial will be terminated early. So that's the worry I have about, uh, about COVID vaccine at this point. Do you think it's likely that the vaccines currently being tested will live or die together in other words like they they all work or none work that's the view of a friend of mine who would tend to know uh no i think they're different enough that uh, some of them actually will work better uh some of them will be worse uh, some of them will have more side effects more uh risk and some of them will have less risk that's something i really want to know because I think the COVID vaccine is not a one-time vaccine. We probably need to be vaccinated every year for a couple of years for this. My current hypothesis of COVID is actually, COVID is nothing special. It's just every other kind of coronavirus that we have a common cold. But those other viruses has been around for a long time. And we all get it when we were kids, when our immune system is like really good in, generating antibodies and not getting very sick. So we all have, you know, 20 years of dealing with those viruses. The COVID is different from other coronavirus just because it's so new. And if you have to deal with it for the first time as an adult or as a senior, that's a big problem. So if we take that view, then COVID vaccine will have to do something like what we did when we were kids for the other coronavirus. We have to do it multiple times in order to really build up the immunity because it's clearly the, the antibody, uh, you know, wanes over time, six, six to nine months for a lot of people. And then the T cell response is not reliable in, in sterilizing it. It just makes you, you know, recover a little bit faster, but, but not necessarily helping you from preventing the serious disease. So, so, so I think the vaccine will be there for a long time. We need to make a choice on, you know, what is, what vaccine is good is, is less risky, having fewer side effects and all that. Those are very important questions. We need to know the answer. So do you think that reinfection, well, I, I, I guess the data is starting to come in that, that reinfection is a, a real risk, like, and it's likely that in areas, a given, so it's likely in areas that, um, have already had waves. They're unlikely to have a, a further full blowout, but they might likely have um, 
sort of mini waves or are they prone to another full on wave? So I guess I guess what I'm asking is it it has seemed that cities and countries that have gone through the full COVID blowout that then they have the blowout and they're kind of okay for a bit. Like New York seems okay for a bit. Sweden seems okay for a bit. Florida, not as bad as feared. Right. Um, so there, there has seemed to be uh, some benefit to having, to having that blowout. Like maybe in New York, they had relatively quick herd immunity within infected, uh, within high risk populations or whatever. And it sort of blew itself blew itself out. So, and now in Europe where there were some areas that didn't have the blowout, I, I don't know what your opinion is, but my read of the data is that, that now cases are starting to trend up in some parts of Europe that hadn't had blowouts and they, they might be most out at risk for blowouts like in the next few months. Um, but I guess, I guess I would like your view on that, like on say Europe. And then I would like your view on, um, a city like New York that has already had a COVID blowout. Um, is it at risk for another one because people who have already been infected will get infected again? Yeah, so let me first say that herd immunity for COVID, I think most likely is a myth. It doesn't exist. Had it existed, then we would have herd immunity for all the other coronavirus too. We never had that. The coronavirus always come back like every two years. You're gonna have a peak of coronaviruses and it's never, it's always endemic. It never gets eradicated. So, uh, but it does have a time constant, maybe nine months, maybe 12 months, depending on the ethnicity and, and different factors, vitamin Ds and stuff like that. New York, Sweden, their uh, recent, you know, low COVID case counts, I think it have more has to do with behavior changes and for Sweden more have to do with their, their summer travel patterns, their you know, vitamin D levels being really high for people in those higher latitude places in the summer because their daylight time is so much, so much longer in the summer, right? It's, it's those factors are contributing to it. I do think probably all the major cities with high population density will be at a high risk of having a second peak, a second wave this winter. December and January is most worrisome time for that. Vitamin D level is the lowest for most people because the days are short. Um, we are indoors. Um, the, the humidity is dry. Humidity is really low, so the, the, the viral particle can stay in the air for longer. Droplets evaporate really quickly and turn into smaller um, smaller nanoparticles so they stay in the air longer. So all these factors make it pretty hard. I think the herd immunity, if like any, that effect will show up maybe in uh, 12 months to 15 months, you might see a small peak of the, like the more secondary, the second infection in, in mass. Uh, when I say like the reinfection, I'm more talking about at the individual level that uh, uh, if, if uh, you know, our family member or, or we have been sick from COVID, it's useful. It's, it's very important to do antibody testing and know your antibody levels. If your antibody level gets low, then uh, 
you know, be careful. Uh, you're still susceptible. It's the, the it's not that um, that you may need you may need three or four infection to really build up your T cell response. It's this is not this this immunity is not very very stable because otherwise we wouldn't have all, all the other coronavirus lingering around for you know yeah for years and it never gets eradicated right you would recommend a a especially cautious approach in december in in january based on the fact that it's likely that a vaccine will come soon after that but those are high risk months you should tread a little carefully right or if especially if uh, some people got vaccine and some people don't and if you and i are not in those lucky group uh then like those people who are vaccinated, they may be still carriers of COVID. They could be just asymptomatic uh, patient. And now COVID is just a cold for them, but they're still spreading it. You noted in the last podcast, the straightforward observation that this is something you don't want to get. Um, you recently tweeted that um, around 10% of the people that were in the hospital with COVID in March have cognitive deficiencies, not cognitive deficiencies. They, they, they have a subjective feeling of brain fog. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Some kind of a chronic fatigue syndrome, like uh, condition, uh, depression. So basically this is the kind of thing I've experienced in the past. And that's probably just by luck that I, a the supplements I recommended back in January turned out to be working pretty well for COVID is because my hypothesis is there are similar viral infections for people in, when they were young, maybe even coronavirus, other coronaviruses that spiked the immune system to a strange situation that you could be extremely sensitive to cytokine levels, for example, or your mast cells get so sensitized that they start to generate lots of histamines and that kind of, uh, the details are still murky. The, a lot of the uh, supplements people take are like mast cell stabilizers or uh, cytokine reducers, that kind of uh, anti-inflammatory uh, supplement seems to work. So the, the risk is pretty high. Like it was, it was uh, to the level that the the uh, antidepressant prescription went up by like 4x or 5x in Wuhan area for between March and May. Doctors were just, because uh, uh, they, they they, the, there was not a lot of medical consensus on how to treat this. This is still in a research stage and people are having these issues and doctors just give them antidepressant to just go away. You, this is a psychological, let's, let's just put you on the antidepressant. You're, you're just depressed. And, and, and you're saying those were likely people that had had COVID and they were, and they were then basically complaining of post COVID symptoms, but their doctor took it as depression. Yeah. Depression. I very much look forward to our next podcast where we're going to talk about your subscription site. I would like to be the on your uh, access database or whatever the modern database technology is. I would like to be subscriber number one. So when it's out, make sure that you uh, that that I I get that that first uh, row subscriber number one. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's going to be pretty exciting because uh, uh, I think a lot many people spend too much time trading, and then I'm trying to automate a lot of the um, noises out of the, the trading signal and hopefully 
you can turn uh, trading options like playing poker. So you just get your win rates, get your risk rewards, that you calculate your Kali uh, sizes and then bet on it accordingly. And then we, let's get those precisely. You don't need to know, you know, Greeks and all these things that uh, probably, it's not very helpful to make a quick decision. Nice, nice. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear the details. This was great. Um, I will have it out in a few days. Look, for, look forward to the next one around uh, maybe end of November, early December. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. It's exciting times.